0: I'm J.R. Woodward, welcome to our social landscape. Lately I've been reading a series of articles about capital punishment by New York Times journalist Elizabeth Bruning. I've long had an interest in and opposition to capital punishment, but I hadn't paid much attention to the federal death penalty until recently. The federal government hadn't executed anyone since 2003, in large part because the drugs used in the lethal injection could no longer be found. The European countries who manufactured the drugs no longer sold them to the U.S. for that purpose. But Bill Barr, attorney general for a period during the Trump administration, managed to buy phenobarbital from an undisclosed company, and 13 people were executed by the federal government in a six-month period between 2020 and 2021. Knowing the drug companies might face a public relations backlash, Barr promised them confidentiality, and to this point it remains unknown to the public where these drugs come from. In quick succession, a few states have begun to buy the drugs as well, although it's unknown where they're getting them. There are myriad reasons to oppose the death penalty above and beyond the ethical implications of the state taking someone's life and the possibility of killing an innocent person. Studies continuously show that it's not a deterrent, and perpetrators don't typically research whether their crime is capital or if they live in a state that executes its citizens. It's basically just functioning as revenge. It's overwhelmingly more expensive for the state to seek capital punishment instead of life in prison due to the lengthy appeals process which protects the constitutional rights of prisoners. Also, many studies show that capital punishment cases are harder on the victim's family than life in prison. The families keep seeking closure and instead they have to wait 10 years, 15 years, all the while being kept in the loop by the attorneys and press reliving the events. Then when the person is finally executed, their loved one does not miraculously return. Another major issue is the racial and social class disparities. People of color who kill whites are much more likely to draw a capital sentence than vice versa, along with those in the lower classes. In short, it's rife with problems, which partially explains why it's been all but abandoned in most parts of the world. So I reached out to Ms. Burning to talk to her about capital punishment generally and her recent research specifically. Ms. Bruning currently writes for the New York Times after getting her start at the Washington Post. She has a degree from Brandeis in English and Sociology, yay, and a master's degree in Philosophy from Cambridge. Ms. Bruning was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in the feature writing category in 2019 for a piece about sexual assault titled, What Do We Owe Her Now?, and she was on Forbes' 2019 list of 30 Under 30, which highlights young entrepreneurs, activists, scientists, and entertainers. She's been described as being on the Catholic left and a democratic socialist, and as such, her writings are imbued with pleas for justice and compassion. I caught up with her in Washington, D.C., from my home here in Jacksonville Beach. So can you tell me what brought you into this mix here? Like, What originally piqued your interest um, about criminal justice generally, and then specifically capital punishment?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, if you're a reporter who who's interested in the sort of human condition, um, the place that you see people encountering really difficult things and uh, going through really profound changes, you know, tends to be an extremist. And, and a lot of those extreme circumstances involve the criminal justice system. Um, and so that's sort of initially how I got into this line of reporting and then the sort of getting into capital punishment. It was a natural development from that uh, just because it's it's a part of the American criminal justice system and uh, one where people are doing a lot of interesting work, I think.
0: OK, so you came into it as as a journalist. That was originally where your interest was peaked. You weren't studying it earlier when you were you know, in college. It just kind of came to you later.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: OK. So. Um, And with that, as a backdrop, can you maybe talk a little bit um, about your recent writing specifically on on capital punishment and uh, the federal moratorium being lifted uh, recently? I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. And then um, if you can maybe briefly talk about your experience when you were doing the research for um, this series of articles.
1: Yeah, uh, Trump and Barr uh, began trying to resume federal executions as soon as Trump got into office. Um, Federal executions had been paused for about 17 years, the last person having been federally executed in 2003. It wasn't due to any real policy change, it was due to uh, litigation. Um, So this litigation was called Roan, and it's changed over time because there have been many, many, many plaintiffs attached to this. But essentially, it was uh, a suit that had to do with whether or not the three drug lethal injection cocktail that had been used under Bush uh, was cruel and unusual, violated the Eighth Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And uh, that litigation went on and on and on. And the reason that it took so long is because we really don't know a lot about how these chemicals in these concentrations work and whether it matters that they're expired or that the, they might be a, a bad batch. Um, it's it's just difficult to know and it's difficult to ask because once we use them, the individuals who have experienced their effects are dead. Um, and so it just took a ton of, uh, of, of depositions, research, inquiries. Under Obama, uh, the government would show up, but they um, weren't actually really interested in you know, carrying out any federal execution. So it wasn't a high priority. And also during that time, uh, a lot of producers had stopped either making the drugs whatsoever. So there was an Italian producer that I believe had been the only producer of thiopental, and uh, the EU didn't want them selling uh, that drug to the United States for youth and lethal injections. It's not a big market anyway, so they just stopped making it. so, you know, there just weren't a lot of uh, of these drugs available to the government. Um, and so the Obama administration would come in and say, look, we don't have the drugs anyway, so we're just pausing this litigation. We're tired of showing up for it when, you know, there's, there's nothing we could do anyway. Uh, but they continued to defend uh, the capital cases that they had. That is, they continued to fight appeals uh, and they continued to give capital sentences on the federal level. Um, they just didn't carry out any execution. So um, Trump got into office and all they had to do was, you know, sort of barrel through this legislation with the Supreme Court being uh, what it is at the moment, having, you know, having the makeup that it does, vastly um, conservative, sure. uh, there just weren't really any barriers. And so uh, Bill Barr protected uh, these drug companies that were selling him pentobarbital, which is a single drug lethal injection formula. Um, And their identities were concealed, so they were willing to sell it to him, he got a stock of it, and they just started executing people on federal death row as fast as they could. Um, And, you know, some, in some cases, these Uh, stays would be lifted by the Supreme Court or appeals denied, you know, at two or three in the morning, and the person would be executed within an hour, hours of that.
0: Let Um, me ask real quick while you're on that with the drug. So the original concoction that no longer is available was a three drug concoction, but now they're just using one?
1: Right. So there have been lots and lots and lots of different lethal injection protocols in the United States. Um, But the one that was in use when this litigation began that held up the federal death penalty for almost 20 years, the one that wasn't used at the time was this three drug cocktail. Right. And now they're just using one.
0: Okay. Do you think the States, um, had perhaps pressured Barr or Trump to, to push this through on the federal level? So it'd be easier for them on the state level to get it.
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't necessarily think the feds are sharing with the States. Um, I think this was uh, it was something that Trump mentioned while campaigning. He specifically mentioned that he wanted to give the death penalty to people who killed police officers. Mm. Um, and he, you know, he could see that that was something his base was interested in the resumption of executions. Sure. And uh, it was something that Barr seemed fairly passionate about. Huh. So I, I don't think it really took any pressure from the states. <laughs> right. That being said, the way that Barr went about getting the Pento, and the fact that he was able to kind of push through this legislation questioning uh, the constitutionality of these drugs, mm-hmm. uh, I think has prompted a rush among red states who want to execute people to resume executions.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And with the current composition of the court, it might not even, you know, face any kind of scrutiny going forward, at least not for a
1: while. Not for a while. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. So when you were doing the research for, um, the series of work you've been doing. Um, can you talk just briefly about that? And what um, what your experiences were?
1: Yeah, I mean, so you know, quite a bit of a reporter's job is just being on the phone all day. Certainly did a lot of that. Um, and I I also uh, read lots and lots and lots of court documents. Yeah, um, spent a, uh, yeah, <laughs> spent a lot of time talking to lawyers. Um, uh, benefited hugely from conversations with the Death Penalty Information Center and, uh, you know, eventually witnessed an execution in Indiana, Terre Haute, one of these federal executions under Trump.
0: Okay, do you think, um, I've read your accounting of that, um, you know, pretty pretty heart-wrenching. Do do you think it, if if this is a hypothetical question, that if uh, people walking down the street, if you polled people about capital punishment, yes or no, whatever, and you had them stand next to you Uh, in that room and watch, would it have a profound impact on what they feel about capital punishment? Or do you think it would, it was too, too removed and too clinical? Like, how do you think it would affect people?
1: Yeah, I think that lethal injection has sort of been custom made to not affect people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we used to use methods of execution that were, you know, in some cases much more effective yeah. than lethal injection, certainly faster.
0: Right, um, right,
1: But they were bloody, right? Like firing squad, hanging, etc. These the were
0: here in Florida. You know, sure,
1: These were, you know, terrifically violent um, manners of death. And, you know, there's no real meaning to cruel and unusual punishment It sort of means whatever you want it to mean. The courts have had real difficulty sussing out what counts. But it's certainly the case that when people can see the violence of the death, when they can you know, pretty well ascertain the experience of the person being killed, that's much likelier to trigger successful, cruel, and unusual punishment complaints. Um, and so, you know, lethal injection was kind of a way around that in that, you know, oftentimes the the person who is being executed is literally paralyzed. So you just can't see much or hear much. And so I, I think, you know, uh, it's certainly effective on the psychological level, you know what you're watching and the context of it is very disturbing, but I think if someone's already on board with the context of it, the imagery is is intentionally sort of sedate and removed.
0: Um, so some brief numbers here. So let's see, the capital punishment has been around forever, like long time at least. You know, In the U.S. or the British colonies, I guess we borrowed a lot of it from then. Lots of people were executed for all kinds of things. And eventually we narrowed it down to just a certain number of crimes. And then um, in 1972 it was kind of halted the Furman v. Georgia case said, the, again, a violation of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, the way it's being done is no good. So then some states figured out a way to make it past that, that you know, jurisprudence muster. And so in 76, it was uh, picked up again. And so since then, the numbers that I could find, it looked like over 1,500 people have been executed In the U.S., uh, I don't know the exact number. Some states are (laughs) making up for lost time. You know, they're moving Mm -hmm. quick. But let's say approximately that. And for those that have been executed, 55% have been white, 34% African-American, 8% African-American. And as a reminder, right, the U.S. population is about 65% white, 12% African-American, and 16% Hispanic. So those numbers are pretty skewed. The victims of people that were executed, 75% of the victims white. 16% African-American, seven Hispanic and prisoners right now on death row, 42% white and 41% African-American. So almost a wash, even though whites greatly outnumber them. Um, Since this is the question, uh, since the, of that 1500, approximately 1200 have been in the South, Mm -hmm. um, 190 something in the Midwest, 570 alone in Texas. Um, have you ever given any thought to that? Like culturally, what do you think's going on in the South? And I've lived in the South most of my life, uh, Florida or Alabama. Um, but what do you think's going on in the South that makes that such a stark number?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, racism, um, I think is a huge part of it. There's a very, very strong correlation between the, um, the race of the victim versus the race of the perpetrator and the likelihood of winning a capital sentence. So, we know that if a perpetrator is Black and the victim is White, the likelihood that you're gonna get a capital sentence out of the jury is much, much, much higher uh, than if the perpetrator is Black and the victim is Black or right. some other combination. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a history of uh, execution uh, being used, you know, as a, as a sort of racialized form of punishment uh, in the South. And I'm I'm pretty sure that's part of what you're seeing there. The other part is just that capital punishment is uh, part and parcel of the sort of right-wing tough-on-crime approach, um, you know, sort of maximal consequences. And I, I think you see, uh, you know, red politics concentrated in, in southern states, some Midwest states, um, and 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 that's where that, that seems to come from. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's not like the, you know, other parts of the country didn't have racial animus, um, but Lynching really seemed to be, uh, in many ways, a, a Southern thing. Um, you know, as, as you know, that a lot of people kind of think the North was this panacea for African-Americans while the South was so terrible, but it was, you know, it was everywhere. Um, but that does seem to have kind of a, a unique history that I also think, I don't know exactly how it plays out specifically, but it has to be informing, uh, informing yeah. things still. Um, and then one step further, if we look at capital punishment here versus around the world, Uh, George Gerbner, the uh, old uh, communications, late communications scholar, called it in America, a medieval form of barbarism, not even contemplated in other so-called civilized nations. So the best numbers I could find, the U.S. ranks about sixth in the world, uh, Mm -hmm. number of executions given after China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Egypt. So that's Mm -hmm. the company we're keeping. 70% of all nations don't have it, either de jure or de facto, you know, one or the other or both. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you brought up a minute ago, I think the EU, uh, European Union, holds a pretty strong position against it. Yeah, and the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's kind of country club that the U.S. is in with 25, 30 other um, pretty well-to-do democracies, Western democracies. Most of them don't have it. Chile has a little bit. Japan have really none of them have really executed people like us. So what about, you know, I asked you about the South in general, what about the U S versus these other countries? Uh, you've said, I, I heard a quote where you said we have a very individualizing ethos. Um, do you think that's the key or maybe just part of it? What's what makes America stand out here?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the individualism uh, is part of it because with individual responsibility and individual credit for accomplishments comes this kind of, of verse of individual Um, responsibility in a sort of maximal fashion for crimes. And so the death penalty, I think in that context seems to be this totally reasonable uh, response to someone uh, committing a crime and and juries are very resistant to mitigation, which in capital cases often aims to demonstrate how the person who committed the crime, um, you know, maybe had reasons that are not just pure unmitigated evil Mm -hmm. Um, I think juries are not necessarily responsive to that because of this individualism. Um, I think, uh, you know, America is just a very right wing country. Um, If you look at uh, other countries around the world of comparable development, they have the same amount of money we have. They often have pretty developed, pretty civilized welfare states. We don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'll have benefits for parents, benefits for children. Uh, a, a kind of uh, rehabilitation focus in the criminal justice system. We don't have any of that. And it's not because we can't have it. It's just because a lot of Americans don't want it. And it's because we're a very right-leaning place. Um, we were founded by Puritans. I mean, this is not a, uh, a liberal country in, in comparison with countries of comparable development.
0: Yeah, the same kind of answers pop in my mind when I think of uh, healthcare. You know, and yeah,
1: exactly.
0: The healthcare program. Why? Why we lag behind on that? Um, and and I think maybe also and related that notion of meritocracy. You know, if mm-hmm. you if you are where you are, it's for your own just your own work or lack thereof, or you know your own whatever. Um, but. Um, Recently, I interviewed Padraig Gotama. He's an Irish uh, theologian and poet um, because I'm interested in how like Christianity, Catholicism, religion overall uh, has been used and is still being used as an agent of what I would call positive social change. But it's also, of course, been used and is still being used in a way that retards that social mm-hmm. change. And my assumption is that both groups think their interpretation of the faith is is the correct one. And you're someone I've I read that as uh, someone wrote that you're a member of the Catholic left. So uh, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on religion being used in a way that at times in the criminal justice system, we could define it as punitive and then at other times maybe uh, restorative, either in criminal justice generally or in capital punishment.
1: Yeah. But you see a lot of arguments for uh, capital punishment that arise from uh, you know, these particular views on, uh, you know, Christianity, typically Old Old Testament sort of penalties. This will be sort of evangelical arguments. Well, the Bible says you need to put certain people to death. That's true. Um, but it's, it's a little ridiculous to pretend that we're operating off of biblical norms because we don't execute anywhere near um, the number of people that we would if we executed each one for uh, offenses listed for execution in the Bible. So mm-hmm. we're not executing adulterers, for example. Um, and so, I, you know, I find all of that sort of literal uh, approach to be a little bit suspect. Um, you know, the Catholic Church is is easier because he, there actually is an organization that can just clear it all up and make an announcement. Um, Pope Francis says that there's no excuse for um, you know, developed countries that can contain offenders uh, to be executing them. That makes some sense to me. Um, and I mean, I, I understand why some people don't like uh, the sound of it. They're, they're more attached to this older way of doing things. But um, uh, I think that, you know, it's pretty open and shut in the case of Catholicism in a developed country. Um, you know, different Protestant churches, different views, Um, but you know, overall, I think the arguments for, for capital punishment in the United States coming from Christianity are pretty weak. Um, there are just better reasons not to, I would say.
0: Yeah. It seems more consistent with what my understanding of it. And I asked that in part because, um, I've heard you articulate a very popular position about the prejudice for Homo sapiens, and, and I don't necessarily share this idea that we're above uh, other animals or non-human animals for uh, moral or you know reasons or a soul or anything like that. But I still think you can oppose it on moral or ethical reasons. But how do you divorce that from? you know, dogma and text, you know, are from a, a direct religion. I, I remember seeing when I was living in in Alabama and in Montana, these trucks that would feed the homeless people vans, and they would give food out and do this, and they almost always had some scripture, you know, strewn across the side of the van and whatnot, and I always wondered, well, where are the people feeding the homeless that aren't re- associated with a religion, you know? That notion of the uh, the right taking the definition of Christianity, kind of controlling it since, I don't know, the 80s or 90s um, has pushed a lot of people away, as, as you know, from uh, Christianity. And I probably was one of them. I went to Catholic school, K-1 well, through 12. I went to a Lutheran school in kindergarten, and they asked me not to come back. And uh, my mom gave me a hard time about that like all my life. But Went to Catholic schools. And then in the 90s, you know, when I'm in college and graduate school, the definition of what Christian was didn't match what I thought it was. And so I'm like, well, I guess I'm not a Christian, right? What do you call them? The, uh, the nuns? Is that what they are? Yeah. What is that? Uh, again? It, it's
1: a none of the above, right? So non-religious. Yeah.
0: Okay, so where, where do you develop um, a bias against capital punishment if you're a nun? You know, there are probably some pragmatic reasons, right, not to support capital punishment, but is there a moral or ethical stance you can make on it without uh, falling back on an organized religion?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, there are, are so, many, uh, so many sort of obvious reasons, but I, I mean, I do think that if you're non-religious, um, you know, there's, a, there's always that sort of robust humanism yeah. that, uh, you know, you can kind of trace to the enlightenment that says, you know, human life is something really special in the cosmos, and we shouldn't be executing people, we should be trying to reform them. And, you know, even if they're not reformable, then we can contain them and keep them from doing more harm. But it, it, it's morally mutilating to us to execute them. So that's, that's out of the question. I think that's the typical secular argument. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, That's a segue into one that I have written here in my notes in parentheses, if time. Um, So uh, we can, we, even if we can't um, forget what the word you just used there, but even if we can't rehabilitate them, whatever the word was, um, we can keep them locked up. And so what are your thoughts on the uh, life? without parole, I, I believe that people are, uh, I think on um, um, polls and surveys are much more likely to be against capital punishment if they think life without parole is an option, but there's also some, you know, some moral implications with that um, as well. And I know, you know, I have my, I have my students read an article comparing um, the Norway prison, like the most maximum security prison in Norway versus like the one we have here in Colorado, the ADX Florence prison. And, you know, of course it's nine day and the maximum sentence you can get in Norway is 21 years. That's it. And then they, you can go, uh, you can be kept for another five years at a time. Like they'll go through a panel to see if you should be out, but uh, it didn't seem like that would fly, you know, really at all it, here in America. I'm, I'm not sure, but what do you think about that? What are your, uh, do you have concerns about that? Or is it just well, one step at a time?
1: Yeah, you know, life without parole is a double-edged sword because it, it the introduction of, for instance, life without parole into the Texas criminal code uh, led to an enormous drop in capital sentences because juries would say, well, you know, maybe there is some small seed of doubt planted by the defense. In that case, let's do life without parole instead of death, you know, and that way they'll have a chance to continue sort of appealing their case and uh, if that small seed of doubt is actually uh, legitimate, then you know they'll let them out or something. Justice will prevail. Juries can tell themselves that, mm-hmm. um, which allows them to you know peacefully select against capital punishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's you know helpful, um, and and that has been good. You know the the once killingest county in Texas, Harris County which used to send more people uh, to the execution chamber in Texas than um, any other state in the country, just that one county in Texas, um, have, has now dropped you know, the number of capital sentences they refer for execution to you know, ordinary levels in keeping with the rest of the country. Right. I don't think you can discount that. Yeah. Um, and that's because of life without parole. On the other hand, life without parole seems uh, really, really, really questionable. I mean, you know, uh, especially if you have young offenders, um, I'm working on a case involving a, a killer who um, who committed murder at the age of 19. Um, they're sentenced to death, and it's possible that sentence might be commuted to life without parole, but still. Um, 19 years and then the rest of your life, uh, that's significant. Sure, sure, It's really significant. And I don't know, uh, I don't know, if, if the United States is, is particularly prepared to take that seriously as a human rights issue, it's, it's another thing Pope Francis has spoken about pretty passionately, he's, he's fairly against. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I do think for some people, some types of offenses, life without parole should be on the table because there are occasionally people you just cannot let out. And so, you know, speaking of Norway, you know, Anders Behring Breivik, the guy who killed right. all so of those teenagers, yeah. right? he he got the maximum sentence, but they're never letting him out. No, he'll just go up every five years and they'll keep They'll him. say no, right? Because if he gets out, he's going to do the exact same thing, yeah. uh, which is try to propagandize people into sort of far right um, and violent beliefs. So they're not letting the, that guy. I would certainly sympathize with Norway's decision to keep him in custody, you yeah. know. Sure, sure. And indefinitely. Um, so I do think it should be on the table. Should it be as vastly and widely applied as it is in the United States? Probably not. Um, but because it has been so useful in reducing the application of capital punishment, I think a lot of uh, capital punishment abolition activists are just really hesitant to get into anti-life without parole stuff.
0: Yeah, sure. That it, it just seems like a huge mountain uh, to yeah. have to move when you're already working on one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people too, they still, they see like Charles Manson coming up for parole every so often, you know, and yeah. his crazy eyes and his swastika and they're like, Oh, we can't have that, you know, cause he was sentenced back in the day when that was the only option, you know, but he's coming up for parole. Of course he's never getting out, but I've heard people, you know, kind of use that. Like we can't have that. We have to have no parole because you know, this guy might get out one day, but yeah. All right. So million dollar question. Last one. Um, so what, thinking about the future, you know, just what, what the future holds for us here in, in the country in terms of a criminal justice. Um, in, in sociology, we have a debate sometimes about um, if you want to make change, do you attack things politically, economically or culturally? You know, the political system is often intertwined with the economic system. Karl Marx would say that, you know, the economic system controls the culture and the politics of the country. Some people go right with the culture. So if we wanted to make changes based on some of the things that we have said, why we, the U.S. stands out, uh, what would be, you think, an effective strategy for us going forward to try and, um, and, and abolish capital punishment once and for all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, legislatively, is 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 the route for abolishing capital punishment. A lot of states have already abolished capital punishment. Um, the, you know, the federal execution spree was interesting because it's very unusual um, or had been for the last 17 years. And even before that had been pretty rarely uh, used. Um, but it's really the states who drive our capital punishment numbers. Um, and so the question is, well, how are you going to stop the states, right? So um, that's going to have to happen on a state-by-state basis. Fortunately, activists have been pretty successful in making that happen. So Virginia has executed more people than any other state in the union since the, count- the country's founding, uh, but it abolished its death penalty this year. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, activists were successful in New Hampshire. Um They have been working in Wyoming, uh, you know, so there are – death penalty activists abolitionists who are active not only in blue states many of which have already abolished more than 20 states have already abolished capital punishment um but even in red states and so i think that you know little by little kind of chipping away at the political process in in states is going to be how this happens there are a lot of good reasons uh that even conservatives are skeptical of capital punishment um and and i think that's very that's 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 the hopeful thing, because it's not going to be through jurisprudence, because the Supreme Court is what it is at the moment. Um, And it's not going to be through a a just sort of choking off of means, because uh, as Barr demonstrated, they can just hide the identities of these companies and not expose them to risk. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to have to be through, you know, the legislative process, I think. And then there's always cultural work uh, to be done alongside that.
0: And the economics is is interesting too, if we could find a way to make it uh, economically feasible. You know, you have said once in an interview um, about the left, they often don't have um, people with money, you know, on on their side. Yeah. Like there, there are no Koch brothers for, you know, the, this side of the argument. But maybe we, it, you know, how could you find one? How could you make somebody of means make this an interest for them? Uh, you know, by, by appealing to their their wallet. I don't have the answer there, but I could see that being a potential at least.
1: Yeah, it it certainly is more expensive um, to use capital punishment than even life without parole because of the the enormous costs associated with you know, for instance, Arizona this year spent $1.5 million on a stock of pentobarbital. Wow, you know, That's quite a bit of money for a state budget. Um, and they didn't have to spend it on that. That was a decision they made. So you can appeal to fiscal conservatives. I mean, there are a lot of counties in Texas, that's just too expensive for them to carry out a capital trial. So they don't really. And that's why big counties like Harris, which is where Houston is located, uh, have a lot more luck. Okay. Um, And so, you know, there are definitely fiscal arguments. Um, It's just that there are so many other things that uh, governments are concerned about, where it comes to their budgets. And if they feel like this is important to voters, they don't want to move on it. So it it gets lost in the mix a little bit.
0: Is the expense because of the appeals process? Just the long, the long. Yes,
1: an indefinite appeals process, tons of court time. Yeah.
0: Which is there to, to make sure we get the right person right? In, in theory. Yes,
1: right. So that whole edifice that's has been erected because
0: necessary. of this,
1: yeah, this problem of posthumous exonerations, trying yep. to avoid that.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are you doing uh, going forward? Are you staying with this topic or are you doing something else, broadening your criminal justice interests? Are you sticking with capital punishment? What are Yeah, you- that's,
1: a, that's a good question. Um, I have some other capital punishment stuff on my lineup. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that because... Uh, because of what Barr has done. States are now going to be more successful at getting a hold of Pinto, which means they'll be more successful at uh, carrying out executions if they want to. Arizona is already in the process of doing this. Um, and, and so I think it's possible that that combined with the fact that violent crime is up um, could lead to a spike mm-hmm. in executions. Yeah. Um, and I'll be watching that for sure. Yeah,
0: for sure. And you have, a, um, you have a podcast as well? Do you want to talk about that? Uh,
1: yeah, I have a podcast with my husband. Um, my husband is Matt Brunig. He runs uh, the only small donor-funded socialist think tank oh, in the wow. country, uh, creates socialist policy. Um, it's called the People's Policy Project. And so I, I podcast with my husband every week. It's called the Brunigs. Okay. If you're interested in current events and hot takes, tune in.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I'll uh, I'll put that when I put this up on the blog, I'll make sure to put uh put a little mention of so as well. I like how you start it with your low, what does you say? Low effort, low low
1: effort, low podcast. quality podcast.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I get, it. I get it. And do you have um anywhere if people wanted to read more of your stuff? Do you have your own um, place that you would you would point them towards? Any particular thing they should follow?
1: I do not have a website. Um at this point, uh, but uh, you know, you can come to the, the New York Times, nytimes.com, and find me on the op-ed page. Okay.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Elizabeth Bernick. It's been uh, it's been very nice. I, I really appreciate you giving me the time um, and uh, and your expertise. Thank you very
1: much. All right. Thank you so much. Take care.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Elizabeth Bruning on our social landscape and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I thank Elizabeth for taking the time out of her schedule to talk to me. And as I was editing our conversation and getting ready to post it, a news flash came across my screen that she has taken a position at the Atlantic starting at the end of May. I'm sure her material will be archived at the New York Times if you're interested in reading her past work. But to read her future work, you'll be able to find her at the Atlantic instead. She must have had even more on her plate than normal when she agreed to talk to me, so I'm thankful indeed. There's a link to her podcast on my page, and I'll list the music there as well. And finally, if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at our